Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Thank you for coming back if you've listened before. And if you're new, hopefully you'll be exposed to a little bit of rational thinking from an American Muslim who loves this country and believes that the best antidote to the defeat and the marginalization of political Islam and all of its movements globally is Americanism. America, the ideas of freedom and liberty. And this is one of the starting points for that, of many points of light, I think, in countering theocracy and the current normative interpretations of Islam. And to that battle, we bring you here in a conversation the fronts, the front lines of those battles through society, be it with the left and its marriage with Islamism, with with socialism and other ideologies that are antith- antithetical to freedom and democracy. First things first this week, we can't help but reflect about what is, you know, to me, my favorite holiday, bar none. Clearly, America and its birthday changed the world. Now is the freest and remains the freest nation on the planet, despite all of our warts and all of the threats to its existence, both internally and externally. And I think that the day that I am most blessed is the day that my family, my parents, decided to come to this country in 1966. And uh, there is no greater sense of patriotism, national identity, than that of Americanism. As many countries, and we're going to talk later about what's happening in Tunisia, and I think many countries that begin to try democracy often will fail. Heck, United States now, after almost 300 years, uh, a little over... Uh, 236 years, it continues to struggle and ebb and wax and wane in its freedoms and its hints of various forms of autocracy and kleptocracy with the establishment and populism and other threats to the practice of democracy. But I think ultimately what is remarkable What remains remarkable is the spirit that Abraham Lincoln talked about, which was that the United States is truly a city on a hill, that ultimately the world looks to us as a beacon of freedom. And in the words of uh, Barry Weiss, who, as you recall, started to expose the inner workings of the New York Times and then was fired and now has succeeded immensely in her own journalistic endeavors through her Substack report and elsewhere. She said this weekend, there's a lot of privilege talk these days, and we are privileged here. And she doesn't mean white or sachette or able-bodied. I mean privileged by being in this country, even with all the intrusions on our freedom that we regularly document here, intrusions in, from government, from tech, from the hall monitors of elite culture. We still know that we are here, the freest citizens of the country, 
of any country on earth. We are all familiar with the complaints and critiques of America. We lodge many of them ourselves. But there's always still that fundamental truth. Every single person in this country is lucky. Not by a little, lucky by a lot. Today, in honor of the 4th of July, we asked Americans to admire, that they admire, to tell us what they love about the country. And she said, you'll notice that many of them are immigrants. We don't think that's coincidental. Those who are not born into freedom are alive to what makes this country exceptional. And I have to tell you, as the son of immigrants, it's not lost on me. It's not lost in the distance history of rhetorical generations, but rather it is palpable. And we see it continuing to be in our faces as American Muslims and Syrian Muslims, Syrian Americans rather, whatever hyphenated you want to add to the beginning or end of the most important part of that, which is American. We really shouldn't be hyphenated, but I think the immigrant culture is part of the reality of those who appreciate this country, I think, in a palpable, real way. And my family did escape the oppression of the Ba'athists in Syria, and now we see the savagery, the genocide that they've continued to push and decimate in their own population. Barry highlighted the words of Yonbi Park, a, a known dissident and previous prisoner in the North Korean regime and defector. She said, I read the Constitution for the first time when I finally made it from North Korea to South Korea. I was studying English and collecting letters of recommendation in the hopes that I would win a visa and be able to travel across the ocean to America. Even with my broken English, I teared up reading the sentences. I didn't know when I didn't know then what the word dignity meant, but that was what I felt for the first time in my life. My mother and I didn't risk our lives trekking across the Gobi Desert so we would buy a nice car or live in a nice home. We did it to get an ID from a government that recognized us as human beings, not as slaves. To us, to become American was like winning a thousand lotteries. I officially became an American six months ago. It was January in Chicago. The judge was late. We were all in masks and we were no and there were no guests allowed. In my heart, though, I became an American when I first read the Constitution. That day in Chicago, I was given a copy of that document, plus my naturalization certificate and instructions for registering to vote after I took my oath. Then I celebrated by going out for steak at the Ralph Lauren Cafe in downtown Chicago with family and a few friends. My mom, who was in South Korea, joined via FaceTime. It was important to me to eat steak Because back in North Korea, my mom witnessed the public execution of a man in his 20s who had killed and eaten a cow from a collective farm. He was dying of starvation and he had tuberculosis, but the cow was the government's property, so he was put to death. The regime there gives more rights to cows than to human beings. Now that I'm an American, I get to eat steak as much as I want, and Kim Jong-un can't do anything about it. Yeonmi Park, a hero. You know, I think it's remarkable that we have people like this who testify every day to the beauties of America and what we stand for and what Americanism is. And I would ask you on this 4th, as you celebrate the birthday of our country, and I say it's my favorite holiday because, yes, as a veteran, Veterans Day is important. Memorials Day is just unparalleled in its recognition and commemoration of those who gave the ultimate sacrifice. And then our religious holidays are important, but... 
Just like a birthday is the time for celebration, there is no greater celebration than remembering and reflecting on the fact that the so many years ago, now into our third century, this country was founded, born out of a revolution, a Boston Tea Party that led to a revolution against theocrats, against those who stood in the way of the founding of America and its constitution. And that paper not only stands as a testimony to one of the most amazing documents written by mankind in history, but the fact, as we see what the Supreme Court is going through recently, that, that at the end of the day, it is the rule of law that makes this constitution, that makes this country successful. It is the rule of law and the fact that it is not a majoritocracy that we do have a separation of powers, and when all conflict persists, it will end at the decision of the Supreme Court. We'll see those who try to destabilize it, that try to run through the streets, riot and destroy and pillage. But thankfully, thank God, they are a minority. They are not representative of the majority, And this is not a majoritocracy. So God bless the United States. God bless you all. And I hope you enjoyed the 4th safely. Enjoyed fireworks or whatever you do. Barbecues or all those things that we do that are distinctly American. So today, I'd like to talk about Tunisia. Why Tunisia? Well, We've talked about Tunisia here on this program many times as it evolved since the Arab awakening. But something's been happening in the last few months and we need to be aware of it so that we put it in the context of history. And we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Zudi Jasser with Reform This. We're talking about Tunisia, and why does it matter? Well, many of the countries that tried to reform against dictators and had revolutions in the streets beginning in January 2011 with Tunisia, and its, um, which will, its historical beginning that began with a a uh, simple, small, uh, little um, seller on the streets of Tunisia that decided to self-emulate and uh, burn himself because he refused to pay the taxes to the king. And next thing you knew, you had the Twitter revolution of the Jasmine Revolution of Tunisia that then led to the exit of the king. And, you know, he left relatively... Uh, with uh, um, with relatively little military machinery against his people, though obviously there was oppressive forces that occurred, but finally he left, and the, the bar, <laughs> which uh, was extremely low, uh, uh, was a bit higher than it was for, obviously, the Egyptian military that uh, ravaged the rioters uh, across their streets of Cairo and elsewhere, and then the uh, riots uh, that existed and the and the 
the demonstrations and protests through um, Libya, Syria, and elsewhere that uh, were, were far more militantly responded to by the governments there. But Tunisia has been, obviously, like any democracy in history, a work in progress. And um, I have reported to you before that I always felt that one of the primary dates that I thought were in which we could have a silver lining that we perhaps saw some hope for the Middle East was December 31st, 2014. Because as we saw initially in 2011, one thing led to another, the regimes fell, they then tried to have elections in order to, to give the people the sense that they were controlling their own destiny. But as we all know, democracy is not simply about elections. Democracy is not simply about the voting booth and the purple finger that uh, we highlighted in Iraq, uh, as I said many, many, many times, was exaggerated as to its meaning. Yes, elections are important, and they are a cornerstone of freedom, and so that the people can elect their own leaders and not be authoritarily, uh, authoritatively controlled through military rule, oppression, or otherwise. Um, but that led to majoritocracy. That led to people that were subject to the whims of those who happened to have an organizational network and structure through these countries. And we saw throughout the Middle East that there were basically two parties that were able to muster enough national communications to create a presence politically. One was the old guard, the dictatorships and their nationalist parties, as we saw in Egypt with the National Democratic Party, uh, the NDP, one of the fascist parties in the Middle East that then gave birth to El Sisi. We then saw uh, the same thing through the monarchies across the Middle East. Tunisia was one of them. Now, the alternative to that, the only organized groups were the Islamists. And in Tunisia, just like in, the, in Egypt, in the motherland of the Muslim Brotherhood, you had the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. In Tunisia, it was a Nahda. And so many of us at the time said, yes, they are evil. Yes, they are theocrats, uh, but they will be defeated ultimately. And they will need, the society will need to go through its permutations. And it, again, initially elected a Nahda. They ruled for a certain period of time. And just like in Egypt, proved not only their incompetence, but their actually rejection of actual democratic liberal principles and that they were trying, they proved to the people that they were trying to put into place Islamic law, not democracy, not secularism or liberalism, but Islamic law. And they were then wholly rejected at the ballot box in 2014. And that's the date that I thought really showed that First of all, Islamism, political Islam, Islamic state identity, the Sharia state is not in the DNA of Muslims, that ultimately they will begin the, the tough work of reform necessary and will go through some of that maturational processes. But then we saw globally and within the Middle East the, the, the move towards populism and the Islamists started to pretend to be things they weren't, which they realized that Nahda or the Brotherhood-type party wasn't going to sell. So they then claimed to be simply Muslim Democrats with a small d. Again, more dissimulation from the Islamists 
and that what took them into 2015 and 16 as the secular party, the secular coalition had been ruling. Now we fast forward to 2022. What has happened? And Doug um, Banlow had a wonderful piece at uh, um, American Conservative and also at Cato. And uh, Mr. Bando talks about, he says, my 26-year-old tour guide is one reason Zin al-Abdin Zin al-Abdin Ben Ali, the former king of Tunisia, was no longer president of Tunisia. When protests broke out in December 2010, Hassan joined in, only to be shot in the shoulder by a government sniper. Since he could not go to a hospital where he would be arrested, friends patched him up, leaving the bullet undisturbed. He went out the next day, he told me, and threw rocks with his other arm. Tunisians like Hassan are at risk of losing the freedoms they gained at great cost. Last July, President Kais Saeed staged a coup against the parliament and independent government agencies. He dismissed the prime minister and cabinet members, claimed all executive power, closed the parliament, prohibited public gatherings, arrested political opponents, and imposed travel bans. Claiming non-existent constitutional authority, he later disbanded parliament as well as the independent judicial and electoral commissions, fired judges, and prosecuted critics. One political professional complained that Said was basically destroying the state. And they noted that many feared retaliation through the apparatus. And there were basically no elements left of a lot of the gains of some of the civil infrastructure of government that had been set up since the repeated attempts at a coalition since 2011. What's going on? Well... Again, I think a lot of this are some of the growing pains of democracy. But the disbanding of some of the separate branches of government should be very concerning. Let me start with what's cup half full here. The cup half full is that in this period, the government also declared, Saeed declared that Islam would not be the state religion, that ultimately it will be a national Tunisia with no particular faith identified as the state religion. Now, again, sometimes the right treatment with the wrong method, with the wrong process, can actually make that treatment repulsive and poisonous to the people because they'll they'll associate it with authoritarianism. And that's my problem with uh, you know, I see. I saw a meme, for example, back a couple years ago, where they showed Jamal Abdel Nasser talking about hijab. And many in the West said, "Oh my God, look at how wonderful this is!" He talks about the freedom of women without the hijab and how harmful the hijab is. And and bottom line is, is the hijab is perceived as a head covering that's religiously required by many Muslims. Now, you can debate as to whether that is religiously required. You can. You can advocate for the fact that it's often used as a tool of oppression and bodily control of women across Muslim theocracies from Iran to Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. But it is one thing to convince the people that it is a free personal choice of religious freedom or not to make that for a woman to practice. 
And it's another in which you authoritatively through fascists like Jamal Abdel Nasser say that somehow it is the role of government to make sure that such oppression doesn't happen. You simply exchange one oppressive method for another. So whether it's Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, Hafez or Bashar Assad, or Jamal Abdel Nasser, whatever dictator or tyrant, Arab tyrant you want, at the end of the day, the method is going to be the same, whether you force a hijab or you say not, and all the the tyrants are doing is using Islamism as a foil by which to legitimize authoritarian control. Let's go back to Bandau's piece. He said, Saeed planned to create his constitution to be approved in a referendum on July 25th in which votes will be counted by his election commissioners. Ahmed Chebi, a former minister, longtime opposition activist and head of the Democratic Progressive Party, pointed to a threefold crisis, political, social, and especially economic, with protests multiplying an increasing number of Tunisians fear what the future might hold, dictatorship, military coup, or chaos. Democracy advocates arranged for Bandau to visit Tunisia and meet with a variety of professionals and activists. Many had voted for Said. Some initially hoped that he would live up to his promise to restore democracy. Today, however, few credit his professed good intentions. Instead, their new uniform diagnosis is that he plans to install an authoritarian system akin to the personalist rule of Muammar Gaddafi, who voiced similar political ideas. More than a decade ago, the Jasmine Revolution erupted after corrupt Tunisian police repeatedly harassed a street vendor and confiscated his goods. He burned himself alive, as Bandau said, and as I mentioned before, triggering widespread demonstrations that brought down Ben Ali's government. The Tunisian uprising sparked a succession of popular uprising in the so-called Arab Spring, but nowhere else did democracy take hold. A nation of 12 million people. They voted for a constitution. They held elections. They formed governments and worked across ideological and religious lines. The Islamic Party and Nahda, now Bandau calls it moderate. Uh, I, I refuse to acknowledge that Islamists can be moderate other than if they claim to disavow terrorism, if they claim to disavow militancy. All they're doing is dissimulating because... They see it as a, a way to create false coalitions. At the end of the day, they ultimately feast off the same theocratic mentality, Sharia state, if you will, with just different types of interpretation from the radicals of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and others. The Tunisian government supplanted Increasingly authoritarian, Turkey is the best example of a Muslim and Middle Eastern democracy, according to Bandau and actually according to many. But again, the Islamists were being defeated at the ballot box. They were being defeated in media. And now, as the secularists saw coalitions falling apart, they said, a, a sliver of them said maybe through Qais Saeed they needed to create a more definitive solution. But this is only going to empower the Islamists. History has shown that Islamists feed off of the authoritarianism. ISIS thrived in Syria, coming from Iraq, 
because of what Assad was doing to the general population. The first year and a half of the revolution, it appeared that Christians and Druze and Alawis and, and Muslims who disagreed, Sunni and Shia, that disagreed with the Assad regime were working together, however chaotically they were. But then started to come the radicalization of the people of Syria and especially the Islamists. And that radicalization led to legitimization of military rule and authoritarian carpet bombing and otherwise of neighborhoods which rarely attacked ISIS but rather decimated the general population. And again, we're seeing this in Tunisia. It still isn't very kinetic. They had demonstrations that included two to five thousands, which is small compared to the Arab awakening of 2011, but is quite significant. Ten years later, with now almost a different generation. What's going to happen? The New York Times this week also points out that coalitions might have gathered but the economy is on the verge of collapse asking for support from the IMF with not enough to meet its debt and that ultimately those who were the heavyweights of the coalition whether it's the unions the lawyers the rights activists to preserve the constitutional system that earned the 2015 Nobel Peace Prize now have receded into the shadows. They tried to protect the gains of the 2011 Jasmine revolution. And now they're beginning to fail because Said has the support of now a disbanded government and the support of the military. Last July, a lot of Tunisians said dictatorship can't happen here. Civil society is too vibrant, said Monica Marx, a Middle East professor at NYU. It's not that Tunisia's democracy is threatened. Tunisia's democracy has been shot in the head, she said. So why aren't they doing anything now? But part of the reason is the reputation of its democracy is that it was fuel for Islamic revolution, for a nahda. And it still hasn't had a coalition of more liberal thinkers that would be ones in which you could rally support. Because Anahda demonstrated that they were corrupt, they were theocratic, they were not in any ways what the spirit of the revolution was supposed to be. But if there's anything you get from me here, it's that it is these treatments of the cancer of political Islam and of nationalist populist fascism that will ultimately evolve to a more vibrant democracy. But there is one caveat, and this is why I dedicate everything I do to the work of this program. Without the lifting up of reformers, Reformers who can lift up an interpretation of Islam that is pietistic, that is spiritual and based in a belief in God, so that it, it lifts up and, and, and fortifies one of the cornerstones of that faith while rejecting establishment Islamic interpretations 
of control of the scholars or ulama, control of the imams and the clerics, control of the Supreme Council until that's marginalized and which they say there should be a separation of state and Islam. So rather than a dictator like Saeed who says there will be no religion in the, in the state, where's the Americanism? And it doesn't have to just be about America. Americanism was about a constitution not under Christianity but under God. So Muslims can't have that same reform in which they say, you know what, the ideas and spirituality and pietism of Islam can be the cornerstones of who the individuals are that form this nation under God, but as a human construct of liberalism, freedom, and values. And those values can be based on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, based on human rights, and ultimately the God-given values of freedom, free speech, freedom of religion, and assembly. These are not just American values, these are human values. And until Muslim thinkers can begin to infuse this into the ideas that begin to undergird societies that are maturing, like Tunisia, they will continue to vacillate back and forth between secular or monarchical authoritarianism of Arabism and Islamism or political Islam and its theocracy. When the secular fascist state cannot provide, the response will be that the theocratic faith state or God can provide when the government becomes God, which is what the theocrats believe they do through an Islamic state in which they make the constitution, the Qur'an. And that's what An-Nahda tried and then tried to say they didn't and then more metamorphosized into something else. But the bottom line is, is they failed. Now to come back to Bandau's piece and sort of finish this discussion. When Saeed, he said, a little-known law professor who had won a populist platform seized control, many Tunisians gave him the benefit of the doubt. Since then, noted several people he spoke with, Saeed has grown both more paranoid and punitive. When members of the parliament met online and voted to repeal his illegal decrees, he dissolved the assembly, which he accused of staging a coup attempt and having betrayed Tunisia. In drafting a constitution, he sought to disenfranchise virtually everyone who's been active politically over the last decade. His political vision appears to involve a leader invested with all power to be advised by diffuse, powerless local assemblies from which regional and national representatives would be chosen, kept disorganized and leaderless by a ban on political parties. Indeed, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, which underwrite dictatorships in Egypt and Bahrain, are widely to be believed to have encouraged Saeed to stage his authoritarianism. And Egypt may have also played a role. So you see these clubs coalescing again, right? You saw the Emirates, which on the one hand was pretending to be moderate, not pretending, maybe it's really, I think it was actually in some ways moderate in order to abandon the Islamist penchant for exaggerating the conflict with Israel so the the Abraham Accords were actually successful in a move forward but for that one step forward they stepped six steps backwards and now have met with genocidal Assad and embraced him back into the Arab League 
And obviously they're doing the same to try to empower a dictatorship under Saeed. Increasingly, the president is isolated and ruling alone. At the same time, one activist noted to Bandau, now we are seeing opposition parties come together, making common cause for a return to democracy. He attended the large demonstration against Saeed's power grab and spoke with some of the protesters. One complained that the president stole all the powers and put them all in his hand. She wanted to restore the constitution. Police have clashed with protesters in many areas of the city, and more demonstrations are planned. The Tunisian General Labor Union, the union, the nation's largest labor union, rejected Saeed's call for a national dialogue given his exclusion of democratic representatives. The union plans a general strike next week. And it goes on to describe the current status of deteriorating affairs economically, politically, and socially across Tunisia. Tunisia is like a room full of gas. Every week it's more full of gas. What should the United States do? Well, my opinion is, I don't think this president has it in him in any ways to advocate for American ideals. Obviously, there's no military solution here, and it's quite hypocritical when, on the one hand, he's groveling to Saudi Arabia to lower their prices, and they're telling him they can't because they've at max production right now. And the president doesn't even seem to understand how free markets and capitalism works when there's a limited supply and high demand. while he punishes American fossil fuel companies to have some type of policy that works in Tunisia is, is incredulous. How would that happen? On the one hand, if he demanded democracy in parliaments and a separation of powers, how does that fit into the rest of the Arab world policy that he has? But that would be the right policy, wouldn't it? The right policy would be for us to be consistent when it comes to advocacy for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and all of those things that are incumbent under it. An advocate for free media in Tunisia, an advocate for a reconstitution of the parliament and a, re, uh, a reconstitution of the parties that he disbanded and the leaders of them that he arrested. And as Bandau ends, he said, still hope remains. One activist said that in the end she didn't feel or think that the Tunisian people will accept dictatorship 10 years later after the revolution. But more than a decade ago, the Tunisian people risked much to free themselves after decades of oppression. They will have to take a similar stand today to preserve the freedoms that they won in the Jasmine Revolution. People of goodwill in America and around the world should stand with them. And I hear, hear that. There's a lot to be learned about what's happening in Tunisia. And as we learn about that, it can start to inform how an offense in the ideas of freedom and liberty is so, so missing. And that there is no military solution. If there's any country that shows that, it was not only Iraq, but a country like Tunisia where we sent no military. And yet we've seen that one of the countries that have the largest recruitment for ISIS, number one, Saudi Arabia, number two, Tunisia, number three, United States. 
study after study. Why is that? Well, on the one hand, Saudi Arabia is the motherland of Wahhabism and ISIS-type ideology. And on the other hand, when there is more discourse, more debate, ideas will flow, the good and the bad. The radicalism, the hate, and the democracy in moderation. So as Tunisia was reeling from a, a deposed dictator who then allowed the Islamists to grow, it also became a, 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 a magnet for political Islamic fervor and hate and Islamism. And that's why it became a, a central piece for ISIS radicalization. But that's where the war of ideas is won and lost, is when that cancer can be treated and seen and diagnosed and biopsied and addressed. That's why in the United States we have an open and free press and we never had a program to counter violent Islamism or counter Islamism, which is what we should have had. Instead, we were just talking about the symptom of terror. We didn't care which imams they were following and no matter how anti-Semitic or anti-Western, anti-American they were, no. We just cared about whether they were declaring they wanted to put a bomb together, which often brought us too late and we even missed the known wolves, let alone the lone wolves. So this is the process. This is the strategy that we should have. And there's so much to be learned in what's happening in Tunisia. And if you want, we'll continue. Pay attention to what's happening there. And we'll continue to follow it here, I promise. The mainstream, the main lame media, lamestream media, whatever you want to call it, does not cover this stuff. They somehow don't want to. They're, they're so obsessed with making sure that the Democrats and otherwise don't appear to not to be failing in a foreign policy perspective that in many ways they have no attention to things that don't benefit them politically. And I know it's easy to blame the West and blame others for what's happening, but Tunisians own this one. There has been no there has been no military strategy that has failed. It's just been a diplomatic one. But there are some new permutations we can have and we start to need to think about as we look at future American leaders that might have better ideas on what to do when it comes to a real Arab awakening for freedom and liberty. And as always, I think there can be a lot of good that can come from the stressors of what's happening and Yes, there might be, just like in, in cancer, as I've used before, patients get sicker before they get better. I think that's what might be happening in Tunisia. Sickness and wellness and sickness. One step back, four steps, one step forward, four steps back, three steps forward, six steps back. We're still moving backwards, but eventually, as reformers come together, that is the solution, right? And that's what I mentioned before, is that reformation against Islamic State ideas, against Sharia State, will give enough of an idea that a coalition can buy to that can then become an actual solution. As always, thank you for being with me. God bless you all. Hope you had a happy fourth. And remember this, the freedoms that our founding fathers fought for and then obviously lived through to create this great Constitution and Bill of Rights and launch this country. And as we've survived a civil war and else this is the greatest country on earth and thank god 
for our freedoms and our citizenship. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and at Reform This Radio. God bless. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.